So we, today, we, we kind of get into a, um, a new section uh, of this ancient letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Uh, so we spent a number of weeks in the first section that really talked about the importance of unity and the problem of disunity that the Corinthian church in particular was experiencing and some of the reasons uh, for why that was happening. And, and now Paul, uh, in chapter 5 here, uh, is going to kind of shift into uh, a different array of topics. And, uh, and today, and um, for, uh, for a few weeks here, uh, with a little bit of uh, an excursion, um, we're going to be talking about stuff like immorality. And so my question is, does the church have anything to say about immoral behavior? Uh, we know that there are people that have a very um, difficult relationship with or to the church uh, because of different thoughts about immoral behavior. Uh, and so this week and next week, we're going to talk about the church's place when it comes to immorality. Today, specifically about how the church handles immorality within its community. Uh, and then next week, I want to talk a little bit about the relationship uh, between the church's moral beliefs and the outside world. And yes, those, um, those things can be, and in fact, I think ought to be, different. At least that's what Paul seems to teach in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, I do want to say that uh, I don't expect everyone here to believe everything that Christians believe about what is and what is not moral behavior. Okay? And so I just want to give permission to all of you to understand that like, this is a mixed group of people. Uh, and we have some who are here who have very particular and very committed thoughts about um, what is and what is not moral behavior. And then I'm sure we have people that think that when it comes to the questions of morality, those are largely um, individual and private matters that nobody else has any say-so in. Um, it's really kind of up to individuals to decide for themselves what is right and wrong. And so I just, I want to set everybody at ease and I want for there to be enough comfort and grace in the room to know that we are all coming from different places when it comes to the question uh, and subjects of immorality. Um, why would I suspect that not everybody would believe what Christians believe about immorality. Well, it's because, let's be honest, Christians believe a lot of really, really strange things, right? Uh, we sang about some of those things today. Uh, we hold very particular beliefs that, uh, that, that some people might describe as fanciful or imaginary, or just completely unbelievable. I mean, we center our faith on the idea that God came into this world, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, and then rose from the dead and promises resurrection to all those who put their faith and their trust in him. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty crazy belief. And it wouldn't surprise me if there aren't. In fact, I hope there are some here that would uh, that would be in such a place right now where they suspend belief on such a thing, right? I mean, after all, uh, our public worship service is just that. It is, and we'll talk a little bit about this in our conversation today, um, but it is a public-facing venue, right, where it's not just committed Christians that come together and worship on a Sunday morning. There are people that are here for other reasons, um, perhaps investigating, perhaps wondering, maybe trying to reconnect with a faith that they had walked away from some years ago, or perhaps they had come on the invitation of a friend, and even though uh, their 
particular imagination at this point in time is, well, I can't imagine that this would really be anything for me, right? Um, let's just, let's embrace who might be here this morning. Now, fortunately, I think Paul gives us, and Paul's the author of this letter that we're studying, uh, he kind of gives us a softball when it comes to the particular instance of immorality and um, and, and, and probably there's a really good chance that everybody here would probably agree uh, that this particular story uh, describes something that was very wrong. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to read the first five verses, uh, spend some time kind of talking about those, and then we'll look at the last three verses uh, toward the end of the message. Uh, and so I just want to read all five verses for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the words will be up on the screen as well. Here's what Paul says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. If you don't know what a Gentile is, this is basically um, kind of shorthand for a non-Jewish person or sometimes just kind of meant to describe um, uh, the outside world, the heathen uh, if you would. And so Paul says that there is within the community of the church a particular instance of sexual immorality that not even the outside world would tolerate. And then he says what, in fact, the, um, the immoral behavior is. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Verse 2, and you, now he says, to the church, not just to this one particular individual who's guilty of the crime, but to the church as a whole. He says, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I, Paul, am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. How many of you are ready for a salty sermon today? Hand that one over to Satan. For the destruction of his flesh. Wow. Let's look at it. Again, verse 1. Paul says, It's reported there is sexual immorality and the kind that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Uh, some questions that I want for us to think about and try to answer uh, this morning. Uh, number one, why was the church so okay with what was happening when Paul was so incredulous? Like, how, how did it come about that there was this disconnect between uh, what was the church's beliefs and practices and the practices and beliefs of the one who helped found and start the church in the first place? Another question is, is immoral behavior an appropriate reason to remove a church member. After all, aren't we supposed to just love everybody? Now, assuming that not every act of immorality ought to get a person expelled, where's the line? Good question. Thank you. And then, what does it mean to be handed over to Satan. Clearly, I think we see that there's an expectation that for the Christian, attitudes toward sexuality ought to change, right? When Paul started this church in Corinth, um, it was a world that was given to all kinds of beliefs about the world, the universe, things like uh, God, theology, man, anthropology, right? Um, there were certain philosophies that had come to sort of regulate the 
condition of men's and women's hearts, as well as their behavior. People understood things in certain ways. And when Paul came and preached Christ crucified, when Paul came and preached the lordship of Christ, that Jesus as the Christ who was crucified is worthy not only of our adoration, but of our full-on commitment and allegiance to him and obedience to his will, there necessarily was a change that took place in the hearts of those who were among the converted. Uh, In other words, to embrace the reality of Christ as Lord had an impact on a person's life. They, they They didn't walk into that experience of being introduced to Christ and surrendering their life to Christ and then walk away a completely unchanged man or woman. A difference occurred, a change, a, uh, a change in the heart, a change of the mind, a change ultimately of how they behaved, how they lived their lives. Now, the way those changes ultimately came to fruition, I'm sure varied from person to person. Uh, for some, perhaps it was a slow and long and maybe even windy kind of road. For others, perhaps it was something a little more direct. But what ought to have been common among all of them appears to be at least an attitude toward what it was their belief was being oriented toward. Now, Paul probably wasn't surprised at the possibility of immorality within the church. I mean, again, after all, he was dealing with a whole bunch of human beings who, just because Christ came into their lives, didn't mean they became overnight these... um, these perfectly new, uh, sensational creatures in the world, incapable of doing wrong, right? When Paul says, it has been reported that there is immorality among you, I don't think that Paul was like shocked and surprised that somewhere within the body of Christ, somebody had committed some act of immorality. Uh, I imagine Paul as a very pragmatic person and also as a pretty astute theologian, he knew the difficulties that we as human beings have when it comes to right living and right behavior, right? And so uh, Paul does not have any pretense that within the church there ought to be 0.0% immorality, right? Paul would have, in his theology, understood that there is a degree of immorality that continues to be somewhat pervasive in our lives, even as Christians. That even as Christians, we we sometimes act in ways that we know are contrary to how our beliefs are oriented. And for that, we need God's grace. We need a community of people that love us how we are as we work through becoming more like Jesus Christ. Because like I said, it is not an overnight kind of thing. He was surprised, however, about the church's attitude toward the immoral behavior. So not surprised that there was immoral behavior, but surprised by the attitude the church had toward that immoral behavior behavior. He says the sin is reported that there's immorality among you. That is, this sin had become public and it was persistent. Uh, not Not that if the sin had been private and confined to just within the confines of the church and the report of it didn't get out there, that that would have been any better. In fact, we'll, we'll get to, um, the problem sometimes churches and religious institutions have with concealing problems within their church bodies. Um, So it's not the problem that it had become public instead of private. It's just that this church, which was supposed to be a beacon of light and hope and God's goodness within its community, had now taken on the reputation of Welcoming, tolerating, embracing, and 
perhaps even advancing a kind of immorality that wasn't even tolerated among the outside world. Again, not to say that um, it's okay for the church to tolerate certain kinds of immoral behavior just so long as it goes along with the mainstream of the outside world. That's not what Paul's saying. It's just Paul is, he's just, he's so incredulous. It's like we're not even talking about the kinds of things that, you know, that would not even be questioned in the outside world. We're talking about something that even the outside world would not tolerate. And that is being tolerated within the walls of this community. And so that kind of brings us to this first question. What happened within the life of the church that such a thing could have gone on? Like what happened somewhere between the founding of this church when Paul came and preached and now, some years later, what happened where something could have gone on? When Paul still, at this particular point, still clearly represents a very different version of Christianity. <clears throat> Verse 2, I think, gives us a little help and insight into what may have gone wrong. Paul says to the church, and you are arrogant. <clears throat> You're arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this, he said. Now, this word arrogant, we've come across this before, haven't we? Right? Arrogant. It means to be puffed up, right? They were proud. They were full of air. They had a kind of religion that possessed a certain largeness to it. And yet, there was no real power behind it, right? That's part of what Paul talks about in chapter 4. Now the question is, are they arrogant in spite of what is going on among them, or are they arrogant because of it? In other words, were they just simply tolerant and relaxed toward this particular immoral behavior, or were they trying to give it theological support? Um, we don't really know the answer to that question, um, but perhaps it was a combination of both. Now, the situation seems to uh, if I could use an analogy to be something like if a, if a murderer showed up at a funeral and instead of everybody there who was attending the funeral being incensed at the presence of the very murderer, imagine if that murderer started telling jokes about the deceased and everybody just went along and laughed with him or her. That sort of seems to be kind of like what Paul is describing here. There's something going on that ought to create such a sense of reproach within the church community, right? He talks about being filled with grief, right? The proper attitude, Paul tells us, toward this immoral behavior is not pride and arrogance. It's lament. It's grieving. You see, the sin was a threat to the community. It was a threat to the community of faith. It was a threat to the community of faith in the, um, in the sense that it had an effect, a negative effect on its reputation within the broader community, but it also was a threat to the community in the effect that it was going to have among the people themselves. Right? There was something about the company that was being kept, that could, and the attitude toward what was going on that could have a negative effect on the rest of the church community. This is where I think it's appropriate for us to talk about the problem that churches and other religious institutions have at times with covering over hidden sins. Um, we see over and over and over again uh, things being reported that have been concealed for years and years and years. Right? I mean, we live up here in the Northeast, and I'm sure it was not lost on any of us when all of these allegations that ultimately prove true about um, clergy sexual abuse within the uh, Boston Archdiocese and how it was this behavior was not only tolerated, but it was even um, allowed to continue 
while it was being hidden and suppressed. To do such a thing is to communicate certain values like we are above having to disclose and deal with this particular matter, right? We're above it. Or the institution is too important to make our secrets public. And so such things as sexual abuse, ongoing sexual harassment, toxic, abusive leadership, mismanagement of money, right? All sorts of things happen within the walls of religious spaces. And oftentimes, especially when the word finally gets out and the cat is out of the bag, you'll find people talking about how they had some intuition about how it was possible that monies were being misappropriated or handled in, um, in wrong ways, or how uh, something like abuse was allowed to just continue and be tolerated because um, you know, maybe, maybe the church in question was, was growing at such a rate um, and the, the power that existed among the hierarchy, you know, especially with the person at the top, was so great that no one dared to challenge it, right? These are the kinds of things often that lead to the concealment of toxicity, abusiveness. You know, I'm glad that we are the kind of church that has a means for dealing with such things. And I think it's perfectly appropriate for me to tell you um, that if, you, if I had given occasion for you to, um, to be wronged or harmed in some way, you ought to do something about it. Uh, and so we as a church, we have a church board. We have people that are very committed, highly committed members of this church um, who give very, very generously, who serve very, very faithfully, who uh, I'd say of them, the church is, the church body, the people of this church are uh, as important to them as you all are to me. And they don't get paid. They don't have a job that depends on whether or not I'm happy. <laughs> and so, um, and, and, and they're all here <laughs> within our church. And so, uh, here, it's possible that a person could go and, and, and say, you know, Josh, our lead pastor, did such and such or whatever, and know that there is somebody to whom I am answerable. Beyond that, I, I hold credentials. My ordination is held with the Assemblies of God. And so, uh, in Portland, we have a district, um, district leadership that, again, I am accountable to. Um, and so I can be reported to them. If any member of the staff were to do something that was inappropriate or wrong, and a person were uncomfortable with, with dealing that head-on because of some, you know, unbalanced power dynamics, then there are people you can go to, myself included, that, where we can deal with this. Like, we're not what we're not interested in is creating an institution that allows for toxic and abusive um, and inappropriate things to be going on and for those things to just go on unchecked. The proper attitude, as I said, is lament rather than pride and arrogance. You see, their pride and attitude, it revealed a disconnect with the significance of God's holiness. We sang about God's holiness this morning. 
And what I find oftentimes when people have a very low view or low understanding of the reality and the nature of sin in our lives and the tendency it has to corrupt, uh, oftentimes there's a disconnect with the reality of God's holiness, right? Um, And so what ought to have been the ordinary natural response was an acknowledgement of what had gone wrong within their church community. Like, have, you ever, have you ever witnessed a person who did something that was harmful to another person and, and then when called on it, they weren't really sorry or bothered by it? Like even if you could eke out an apology, you know, from one of your kids to the other, like you could tell little Johnny just wasn't actually sorry. And what does that do? I mean, that, that, you're, more, you're almost more bothered by the lack of sorrow and grief that the person has about the harm that they've committed than the actual harm that they committed, right? Because there's something we know, like deep down inside of us, there's something wrong with that disconnect. And so then Paul, he begins to describe what appears to be an appropriate action in this case, and that is removal of this church member. And so another question I asked here at the beginning is, is immoral behavior an appropriate reason to remove a church member. Aren't we supposed to just love everybody? And then assuming that not every act of immorality merits kicking a person out, <laughs> like where do you draw the line? Who's ready to go to seminary? Anybody want to go into pastoral ministry? Right? That sounds fun, doesn't it? Like what do we do about that? I mean, Paul says remove this one from the church community. Now, we have to understand some things, right? When we're interpreting Scripture, we have to understand like, what things meant to the audience to whom it was written, and then from that, see how does this apply and what does this mean for us? And so let me just say a couple of things, right? Because, I mean, if we, I think it's pretty clear, if we just started removing people, like, disallowing people to come to Sunday morning worship service based on the conduct of their moral or immoral behavior? Um, first of all, how do you even do that, right? And, and is, is, that, is that really, as a, as a church, is that what I think, you know, the, would, would bring the most glory and honor to God? And also, would that be the, the best way for us to be in community with one another? And so um, one thing we need to remember about the Corinthian church is that their gatherings were very different from the kinds of gatherings that we have today, right? Um, they weren't the public spectacles that, the, that our churches, especially churches in America, churches in uh, modern and Western kinds of environments, uh, they weren't the public spectacles. They weren't uh, for us, our Sunday morning worship service is an evangelical outreach to some degree. I mean, it, yes, it's a place for Christians to come and gather and to worship God corporately and to, uh, to hear and to be taught from the Word of God, but it's also uh, part of what we do here is evangelism, right? Like I said at the beginning, I hope, I expect that there are people here who are not following Jesus. And I hope that at some point, somewhere along the way, there's some folks that make a decision to begin following Jesus, right? And so this wasn't necessarily the case when it came to the Corinthian church. I mean, they were, they were far more intimate, far more insular uh, when it came to, like, who was in the room. Uh, their worship gathering centered on the Lord's Supper oftentimes, a meal, right, that they would have together. Um, it, it really was, I mean, we call this a worship service, but, I mean, theirs was truly a worship service that was largely restricted to believers. Um, for, for one, it was, it was very unsafe in a lot of contexts for a person to even be found out to be worshiping the God of the Christian, right? To be worshiping Jesus as Savior and Lord. That was, that was, uh, not just difficult, it was dangerous, right? And so it, it, was, it was very different from, um, from here. But, but even, even when we consider like what's going on here right now, um, there is within the life of a church like ours, there is 
movement that people uh, are involved in from, from, from places on the outside toward the core, right? And, and uh, we as a church, like culturally, we want to be the kind of place that is, that is not making these sharp distinctions between us and them, right? These categories of who's in and who's out. But the reality is, right, just by the very nature of what the church is, there are those who are really kind of into and part of the church that are, that are living at the center and the core of the life of the church. And then from that, there are people that are in varying degrees of relationship to that, right? Some who may be kind of close and, and, and almost there, and some who are, you know, really, really kind of far out there, just like almost like on the outside looking in. Not because... They're not allowed to move closer, but because we live independently of one another, right? Like, that's, that's the way we come into our particular uh, world. We come in as individualists, and we make decisions about what we're going to participate in and what we're going to be a part of, right? And so that's, that's just what we have going on here, um, I think a lot of people treat church like the next series in your Netflix queue, right? Um, there are some who have watched the series three times, who can quote lines from it, um, who read fan blogs when they're not watching the series. They're wearing the hats and the t-shirts, right, that promote the show. Um, and then there are some who... Um, Are, they hear about it, they watch an episode, not really sure if they're going to be into it or not. They're just checking it out. There are some who have the kind of relationship with it where they, they watch a, an episode or two and then something better comes on that captures their attention and so they kind of go away from it a while, but maybe they'll come back to it later on, right? Uh, that's, how, that's, that's the way a lot of people um, are... The, the, how would we describe their relationship to the church? Now, Paul then says in verse 5, and here's the real troubling thing, right? Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so uh, I've already said, and I'll just reiterate now, that um, there seems to be a very particular action that Paul directed the church to do with regard to this person that is probably going to be less of the kind of thing you'd see in a church like ours today. Um, now, it's not clear exactly what Paul is envisioning, but probably it's something like, again, this community was a, uh, this community of faith was like a, is a kind of life support for people. Now, some of you, probably very few of you, feel that way about your church, right? Again, because we're just, we're so much more individualistic. Um, and so, uh, but there are, there are some, right? There are some that, that feel like, you know, my church provides a kind of life support for me. And if I were ever to be forcefully removed from that, that would, that would have a, a tremendously negative impact on my well-being, right? Right? So there's, there's some of us that are here like that. There are others who, you know, if that same exact kind of thing happened, you do one of two things. Well, you just pick another church in town, right? That's easy enough to do. Or you just say, well, I guess I'm all done with institutional religion. I'll just live out my own private faith. But in Paul's day, in the day of this Corinthian church, like to be a part of the church community had incredible significance. It was a, like a high degree of life support for the individual. And so it meant something to be excluded from that community. I think that's kind of what Paul has in mind when he says, all right, this person wants to act like, in fact, act even worse than those on the outside. Well, then let that person live their lives again in that world from which they came, right? Let them put them back on the outside until they've repented, right? And in doing that, perhaps, um, perhaps that will move a person from just being complacent and stuck in their sin into a true attitude of repentance. Um, but anyway, whatever's meant by the church's definite action toward the immoral person, the grammar of the Greek text here in this verse clearly says that 
to hand this one over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that their spirit might be saved. The grammar is very clear that this wasn't about punishment. It was about redemption, right? There was a kind of punishment that naturally happened with the removal of this one, right? There's a kind of discipline that was being leveraged to deal with this particular issue. But it wasn't punishment per se that Paul was going after. Rather, ultimately, it was redemption. And so what we understand, what we take from that, is that the Christian community, regardless of how it practices and operates when it comes to all of the difficulties and the messiness of the people who are a part of the church, we have absolutely some responsibility and we have a vested interest in the ultimate redemption of people's souls. Like at the very heart of what we want to be about is God's redemptive work and plan in the life of every individual possible. However that might be accomplished. I'd say that for those who are very, very close to the core and the center, there is a certain kind of discipline that would probably be far harsher than those who are farther on the outside would ever experience. And that's perfectly appropriate, I think. Just like, um, you know, if you're a parent of young children and you have, uh, you have other, you have kids from other families, say, in your house, right, and your kids are all playing together and something's gone disastrously wrong with the behavior, you're probably going to discipline your children differently from how you discipline somebody else's children, Right? I mean, that's just the way it works. And so how do we, this is the question we would want to answer and be moving toward is, how do we as a church, how do we provide for the best means of redemption? How do we become a redemptive kind of community? How do we become the kind of community that's full of the love and the grace of God? That showers people with appropriate means of love and kindness and patience and long-suffering, that is unwilling to be tolerant or to have a lax attitude when it comes to immoral behavior, but that also recognizes the fallenness within the human beings that compose this thing we call the church. How do we become the kind of place that isn't known for our very strict and rigid and awesome means of discipline, but rather, how do we become known as a community that is known for its practices of redemption? Paul says, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. As indeed you are, Paul says. And so Paul here, he uses this analogy of, um, of leaven. Uh, and leaven in Paul's day was not, wasn't yeast, right? I have yeast in my refrigerator. Yeast is pretty safe and sanitary, right? I can throw it into a recipe and use it to, um, to cause bread to rise. But in Paul's day, they often used leaven. And, and leaven for them was, it was, it was like last week's dough that had soured and fermented. In a sense, had become kind of rotten that was used to permeate a fresh batch of dough that would then cause that dough to rise. And, and Paul, he came from a heritage that celebrated things like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was this this feast where every Hebrew family was instructed to throw out all their old leaven, right? The whole entire nation was to rid all of the leaven and eat only unleavened bread. And in doing that, they kind of start this cycle over with this new leaven. And so leaven had come to kind of take on a symbolism of that which is evil or sinful. And so Paul here, he's describing this particular instance of immorality as being like leaven, like this little, this little seed of rottenness that is having permeating effects within the church community. He says, so he, again, 
tells them to discard that leaven so that you might be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. And here's the really, really critical thing that we need to understand. That is that our moral commitments, the moral commitments that we make as followers of Jesus and the moral commitments that we make as a community of faith, they should rise from acknowledgement and not legalism. I imagine many of you have been parts of religious environments that were very, very legalistic. And by legalistic, I mean you need to do this in order to get that. Or you need to not do this or not do that in order to become this, right? That's legalism. That's saying, hey, if you follow certain rules and regulations, then you can have something. Or if you follow certain rules and regulations, then you can become something. That's legalism. And Paul says not to purge out the old leaven so that you can get God's blessing and God's favor, or to purge out the old leaven so that you can become the church that God has called you to be. No, he says, indeed, you already are, right? Our moral commitments, they come from an acknowledgement of what we are. And that is a community of faith in the business of redemption, of experiencing God's redemption for ourselves and inviting others into that same redemption. Therefore, Paul says, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth.
I'm really glad this morning that